Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca St. James. My guest today is acclaimed dentist, international speaker, and author, Dr. Susan Maples. Dr. Maples leads a successful insurance-independent total health dental practice in Holt, Michigan. She is the immediate past president of the American Academy for Oral and Systemic Health. And in 2012, she was named one of the top 25 women in dentistry and one of the top eight innovators in dentistry. She's also the author of Brave Parent, Raising Healthy, Happy Kids Against All Odds in Today's World. We're also very pleased and honored to have Susan as one of the Children's Airway First Foundation board members. I'll include Dr. Maple's full bio for your review in our show notes, and it will also include links to her website as well as her books. So now let's jump into my interview with Dr. Susan Maples. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Maples. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rebecca. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. So let's just jump right in. Um, I'd like to start with something that you cite in your book, Brave Parent, which we will put a link to in our show notes for for anybody to check out. You cite that 75% of our country's health expenditures for lifestyle diseases are preventable. Um, So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you say that, that our healthcare system isn't paying for prevention, only treatment. So how do we impact that? Well, that's a crazy number. If we did actually focus on prevention, we wouldn't have a healthcare crisis. It's true that this is the largest um, decrease in human health in the history of the human race. And it's non-communicable disease that's preventable to begin with. So when we think about our our killers, heart disease, diabetes, uh, sleep apnea, chronic systemic inflammation from all kinds of aspects, I mean, we, cancer, we're, most of these are preventable. And when, if I gave you, Rebecca, $100 and said, this represents all of healthcare spending in the U.S., tell me how much of that $100 you believe is being spent on prevention right now. Take a guess. Um, I, I would say at best ten dollars. One dollar. Wow. Dollar. So you know, you might be thinking about early detection, like mammograms or PSA tests or sure things like that. Those are not prevention. Those are early detection because we know that oh, okay. cancer early, we have better outcomes. But I'm not talking about catching disease early. I'm talking about preventing the diseases that we're paying dearly for. It's very. Okay. Yeah, that, that is very different. And when I look at the fact that obstructive sleep apnea impacts 26% of our adult population, only 4% of them know we're just catching the low hanging fruit and it's advanced disease. And, you know, moderate sleep apnea increases your risk of stroke by five times, you know, it, it, and cognitive decline. And I mean, there's so many things. Right but there's this urban legend told of these two men standing in a river fly fishing and they happen to see a child floating down downstream and um, the child's drowning. So they drop everything to do the save. They pull the child out, get him on the, on the um, bank. And then they notice two other kids coming down the river drowning and then three more. And these guys are literally hauling these kids out when one of them decides to take his waders off and put his sneakers on and start running upstream. And he says, where are you going? You can't leave me in this mess. Where are you going? And he said, I'm going upstream to figure out what's happening there. And Uh. the whole effort of pediatric airway identification and intervention and even prevention is an upstream effort to save a lot of lives later. And not just a lot of lives, because we're all going to die. That's just a given. Right. Right? It's right. about the quality of our life here on earth. And of course, the quantity, but really the quality of our life. Right. And well, I guess kind of to build on that then, I mean, with the statistics, excuse me, the statistics you just mentioned as far as adults go, and when we back up to where it possibly comes from, we're looking at what? 
30 to 35% of children have some kind of sleep disordered breathing. Right. And if you Google that number, how many kids have sleep disordered breathing, you're going to be looking at the outcome of sleep tests. How many of our babies really go through sleep tests? Hardly any. Right. That accounts for about 3%. And that's what you'll see in the literature if you look. But when we talk about sleep-related breathing disorders at 35% of children, we're talking about a cluster of symptoms such as any audible breathing or snoring. Uh, We call this upper airway resistance syndrome. That's actually measurable. I think that we have a lot more UARS in children than we ever imagined. We tend to typify this condition. By the way, we, we, we begin with healthy sleep. And then we Mm -hmm. move it sort of less healthy sleep, some obstruction and UARS, then, you know, beginning with sleep apnea and then more advanced sleep apnea. But when we think about UARS, Mm -hmm. uh, it's measurable in a sleep study. It's, they don't stop breathing for 10 seconds or more. So there's no, there aren't the apneic events we see. So they're not measurable with the typical polysomnogram or home sleep test. You literally need to have a technician watching the patient. And we typify this as the, the, the sociographic or the demographic is young, fit females, but we see it in kids. I'm convinced that it's all over in the pediatric population where they have an effort to breathe and then they breathe. So they don't stop breathing for that full 10 seconds and they don't become hypoxic, but what they do become is sleep deprived because they're not getting a full night's sleep. If every time you start to slip into deep sleep and you go into REM sleep and then you wake up with an effort to breathe and breathe, you don't right. get to, you don't get to restore your cells, your cognitive function, your brain health, like you're sleepy. And sleep mm-hmm. deprivation is a big deal. You know, that's really a big deal. Sure. Sure. And and we're seeing it manifest in different ways too, you know, in, in children, one of the ones that we've talked about that to me, it's still so surprising, ADHD. You know, I would think as an adult, we just get tired and we just want to go to bed, but they go the other completely way in the opposite direction. And in fact, 37% of ADHD is really misdiagnosed. It's a sleep disorder. And when I think about that, because the symptoms look so much the same, And how do you treat the ADHD with stimulants? But the stimulants, while they may create increased function in these tired sleep-wrecked kids, they are also robbing them of some of their nighttime sleep. Mm -hmm. Take a stimulant, especially if it's by dose, like one in the afternoon, year and a half. So what I say is before we land any child with ADHD as a diagnosis, they need a sleep test for sure. And as parents, is that something we can advocate for? I mean, obviously, for sure, should for sure, for sure. And we as health professionals uh, need to be able to alert people that you know when you think about ADHD, its diagnosis is just a cluster of symptoms. So if you look at the cluster of symptoms around sleep-related breathing disorders, they're very similar. So it's very hard for me to think about, well, you know, a child shows up and they're fidgety in school and they have lack of attention and they have some learning disabilities and they have some behavior behavior deficits and we go, must be ADHD. And we put them on a stimulant and they get better. Wouldn't, doesn't that sound familiar to you in terms of data breathing disorder, right? It does. It does. So, yeah, I think we have to be careful. There are a lot of uh, physicians who understand the cluster of symptoms of ADHD, they don't necessarily understand the cluster of symptoms around sleep-related breathing disorders. Okay. And that's, yeah. And I guess kind of to segue in, because we've talked about this on some other podcasts and, and in your book, Brave Parent, you, you reference some of the information presented by Dr. Boyd, which Mm -hmm. For those who haven't heard it, I'll link that in our show notes so they can listen to that episode. But you know what? Let me let's back up for a quick second because when I yeah. mentioned 35% of kids have sleep related breathing disorders, I said snoring and any obstruction, audible breathing, upper airway resistance syndrome. And then I, I sort of stopped. And oh. It also includes obstructive sleep apnea, of course. 
chronic congestion. And I'm going to talk in a few minutes about allergies being the number one reason for chronic congestion um, and the effects of that, the impact of that. Chronic respiratory infections, including chronic tonsillitis, which crowds the airway and ear infections. Um, And then nasal disuse, which is the congestion caused by the mouth breathing itself. You guys have talked about this before, right? Right, we have. Goopy nose and the inflamed anterior turbinates that are caused Mm -hmm. from the mouth breathing itself. Well, you know, and and maybe this is a a better time to, to segue into allergies, um, because I know you talk about that and how, uh, you know, the, the role that it plays with airway dysfunction. So maybe we could talk about a little bit of that now. Allergies. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to, this is an area that I've not heard other people talk about when I know pediatric airway seminars. And I kind of stumbled upon this in writing the brave parent book, because brave parents raising healthy, happy kids against all odds in today's world has several sections beginning with food relationships to food itself and then drink and then microbial diversity in the gut, which is really about uh, what I'm talking about right now, which is gut microbiome. Then I go on to talk about breathing, which is build, building the tongue box as we're talking mm-hmm. about right? Right. Sleep right. breathing disorders. Then we talk about um, oral health and social emotional, cognitive health and exercise health. So the book is broad Um, in the, in the research, in the evidence for uh, looking at the fact that our gut microbiome has decreased in diversity about half in 50 years. So what does that mean for every cell in our human body? We have 11 bugs living on us or in us. Okay. 11, 11. 10 to one virus and one to one bacteria. That's a lot, right? Right. As an adult, the bacteria in our gut, if you were to take it out and weigh it, weighs approximately three and a half pounds, anywhere from like two and a half to seven pounds of bugs itself. Okay. Okay. And what's happened is we want as much diversity as we can. Because in any ecosystem at all, whether it's rivers, lakes, forests, streams, anywhere, if you start to decrease, deplete a couple or major ones or some more major ones, others overgrow. In Mm -hmm. dentistry, we see it a lot. We see a lot of candida overgrowth. If you're on the shore of the ocean right now in Florida, you see red tide, which is a bloom of bacteria from Mm -hmm. depleting some of the natural um, uh, bacteria in in the water. So... When we look at what's happening in the gut, we had an increase that according to the Center for Disease Control in the US, from 1997 to 2011, we had an increase of allergies by 50%. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. In the history of the human race, we've never seen this. One in every 20 children has a food allergy. Mm. And emergency departments in our country have a visit for allergy, pediatric allergy every three minutes. So it's out of control. And what Uh the American Academy for Allergies, Asthma and Autoimmune Diseases did is they said, we're going to take away all of the allergic foods from kids early on. And Uh that's until later till they can handle it. And it's right. The allergies were out of control. It just kept skyrocketing. So now they've reversed it to introduce allergens earlier. Um, but why do I met the allergies? The chief allergens are, are like soy tree nuts, which are like, um, cashews and walnuts and pecans, pistachios and almonds, but also shellfish and fish and then peanuts, which are, um, not tree nuts. They grow underground, but they are in the legume family. And they, but the reason I mentioned this is because, um, Allergies, chronic allergies cause a chronic stuffy nose. Mm-hmm. So how do you, because our mouth was not made for breathing, right? It was made for right. eating, talking, right. right? It's the backup valve. Let's face it. God gave us a mouth so we could breathe through it if we got stuffy in our nose. Sure. What happens if a child is chronically allergic to their environment, especially the foods they eat, and their nose is chronically stuffy? 
What do you think? Chronic feel? mouth breather. Chronic mouth breather. Right. That's something we haven't addressed. When we start looking at what most of the health professionals say about sleep-related breathing disorders, is we start with um, habit control, thumbs and pacifiers. And then we move mm-hmm. to guided growth, which is really myofunctional therapy and growth appliancing, and then orthodontics, which is moving teeth, or orthopedics, which is expanding the um the maxilla. So when we think about this, I believe that we ought to be doing allergy identification early as part of the airway protocol. And so there is this thing called the atopic march, A-T-O-P-I-C. You can look it up. It starts at about a month old with eczema, sometimes at And eczema in early, those early years goes on to be food allergies at about two years old, and then rhinitis, chronic running nose at about three years old, and then on to asthma. And this tends to be this march of autoimmune progression. And it is impacted very much by the lack of diversity, by a whole bunch of factors. But we don't want these kids on it. We don't want these kids on this march where they get these food allergies and chronic stuffy nose. So how do we avoid it? Well, the causes of this in our children today versus 50 years ago, or God forbid, 200 to 300 years ago, which yeah, by the way, in the history of the human race is a blink of an eye ago, right? Right. Um, but the causes are many, uh, probably the primary cause, well, let me save those for the end. Number okay. one, one of the causes is C-sections. 32% of our kids are born of C-section. The World Health mm-hmm. Organization would like us to be at 10%, no higher than 15%. There's a bunch of problems with that. You know, so why we, are we having so many C-sections? Well, uh, convenience, it's more profitable, it's more schedulable. Mm. And also we have a lot of obese uh, young people who are having babies and that's considered high risk. So there are, are obviously high risk pregnancies, but okay. we have um, also kind of enjoyed the convenience of it, you know, and risk management liability. If there's any complication at all, anything at all, we're scheduling a C-section. So why is the C-section so important? Well, because if you're lucky enough to be born through a vagina, you're, you're basically coming in through the vaginal canal, mouth open, face down, picking up the mom's vaginal microbiome. There are four really strong microbiomes, the vagina, the elementary canal, the mouth, and the skin. So coming down face down, the baby's picking up the mom's natural bacteria from the vagina, then picking up um, gut bacteria from the elementary canal because they're right there in the middle of the poop chute, right? And then they crawl up the skin to suck on a breast. So they get the skin microbiome. If they're born of a C-section, they're born relatively sterile. Being mm. out without that. And what's right. is that babies who are exposed to those early microbes, you spend about three days just as a little factory right away producing, producing, producing more bugs mm-hmm. in order to digest breast milk. While the mom moves from colostrum in her breast to breast milk, the baby is moving from a gut that can't digest to a gut that can digest. Okay. So Um, we end up seeing more uh, allergies and autoimmune problems from C-section babies, no question. Then we have the child's antibiotic history and we start by dumping antibiotics in their eyes the minute they're born, right? Uh Right. And then 80% of the antibiotics in our our country are sold for livestock, for meat and milk. So if you're not buying humanely treated animals that are raised without antibiotics, you're getting all of that antibiotic, right? Right. Then we have over sanitization of our world that started back with hot dishwashers and hot washers and dryers, but has really progressed during COVID. I mean, during everything from sanitizing everything plus indoor play versus outdoor play. We live in these hermetically sealed homes. We need to be out in the earth. Kids need to be out playing in everything except animal feces, really everything rivers and streams and forests and, you know, digging mm-hmm. the dirt and all of that. Um, also, um, the, um, the, the, the biggest ones that I didn't mention first 
were ultra processed foods in houses where there's no soil, no living bugs, none of that. And it's a whole bunch of chemical additives that we are unfortunately needing to process emulsifiers and thickeners and flavor enhancers and all of the chemicals that keep Mm -hmm. foods on the shelf for six months or a year. And then there's the probably neck and neck with ultra processed food is just the lack of diversity in our food. 75% of our food comes from only five species of plants and 12 species of animals. We're just super narrow and we get into these little habits of eating chicken nuggets and mac and cheese and, you know, the hamburger. I mean, it's really, really sad. So when you think about all of that, we're going to see an increase in allergies. Allergies are the number one reason for chronic stuffy nose. And you're going to have compensatory compensation by popping the mouth open and breathing through the mouth. And that is going to have a negative effect. The tongue is low. The facial muscles collapse the arch. Uh, We don't grow a big enough tongue box. The entire airway isn't developing up and forward to meet the, you know, the anterior growth and width of the maxilla and mandible. And we end up with, um, with a thwarted development of the growth that we can't get back. So I think this area of pediatric allergy is huge. And I I, I mean, I don't know anyone else talking about it, but I wish everyone was, because I think it's a big deal. I think we need to really look at that. I I would agree. And can't uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but can't these allergies or the allergens themselves impact inflammation, which again, is going to go back and impact your airway. Totally. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And then the other part is, you know, we focus on putting anti-inflammatories up the nose, like xylitol and nasal clearing and things like that. But if you are unaware of a food allergy and you're getting chronic rhinitis from the food allergy, like no amount of rinsing is going to get at that root cause. We need to go to the root cause of the congestion. And that's Mm -hmm. an area I think we're missing. So thank you for asking about that. Absolutely. Sure. Well, and I guess, and then this does kind of build on it and it's, it's kind of where I was leaving before because um, you had referenced some things that Dr. Boyd had mentioned. And one of the things that, that you mentioned that we really haven't talked a lot about, which is surprising, but incorrect swallowing patterns. Yeah. So as a parent, you know, what exactly is this and what should we be looking for? Well, it's interesting. The I'm not a myofunctional therapist. All three of my hygienists are trained in myofunctional therapy, and we have one on, on our team, uh, one who is practicing on our team. So I will tell you that I know something about it. I'm not an expert in myofunctional therapy or speech language pathology, but I do know that when we look at tongue function, mm-hmm. the tongue has to work a lot harder at sucking from a breast than a bottle. We need proper latch so that we can give us a child, if the mom's willing, as much breast time as possible. Okay. And that way, the 16 muscles that come together to make the tongue, by the way, mm-hmm. the tongue is the tip part that you use for articulation or pointy, the pointy part is mm-hmm. just a fragment of the entire tongue, right? Right. Cause it's much longer than I it's think. It's not longer. Realize thicker. It's like huge. It's, you know, it's a big mass of muscles and those 16 muscles mm-hmm. need to do the work to expand that mid palatal suture and grow the tongue box that it lives in the, in, in dentistry, we always say, uh, muscles always win. So what does that mean? You know, in the scissors, paper, rock game, mm-hmm. the paper covers the rock and the scissors, right. Fall the paper or the scissors uh, cut the paper and the rocks versus the scissors. So you go like scissors, paper, rock in dentistry. I don't care what you put up against muscles. Muscles win every time, every time. So when you have a muscle group, like the tongue, if it's strong and robust and has the ability to move the way it's supposed to, and we develop that growth of musculature you will absolutely develop a tongue box that supports nice straight teeth, broad nasal base, because remember the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. It's a very Mm -hmm. thin, right? 
get drilled a hole through your palate, and I don't recommend it. But if you do drill a hole, <laughs> you'll be there in a heartbeat, a quarter of an inch, right? You'll be right there. Right. So, right. but the idea is that we want a broad nasal base, a nice rounded arch form, and a palate that mimics our flat tongue so that the tongue can take a neutral resting position suctioned up against that palate without effort. That's mm -hmm. how we get to sleep with our tongue out of the way. Then and I think that's it that with that effort thing, that's the part that I think a right. lot of us are having trouble with. Yeah, because during the day, we can all do it. Not all mm -hmm. of us. You're doing it right now. So why do you do it now? And then during REM stage sleep, you don't do it? Well, at night during REM sleep, all of our muscles are completely paralyzed, our skeletal muscles. Mm -hmm. And that turns out has advantages. So you don't kill anyone when you have dreams of doing that. <laughs> all of our spouses are alive for a reason. Right. <laughs> but the disadvantages are that if you're if you can't hold your tongue in its proper rightful position up on the palate out of the airway, if that's not the neutral resting place for the tongue, the tongue will fall back and collapse into the throat. And that causes obstruction. Right. So we have to um Think about the tongue as early as possible. Does it, is it able to suction the back of the tongue up against the palate? Mm -hmm. And does the child have the movement to be able to put the tongue out over the lower edentulous ridge, the bony ridge? Kevin okay. calling me. Isn't that funny? You want him to answer the yeah. question? Yeah. Hey, Dr. Boyd. <laughs> hey, Dr. Boyd. <laughs> anyway. Um, the, if you want the tongue to be able to move out over the bony ridge onto the lower part of the mom's uh, breast, the alveolar or the, the region of the breast that produces the milk, right? The glands. Um, and you need the baby to be able to swallow that milk. Um, you, you need kind of a front to back movement, but we also want the lateral movement of the tongue to develop, which means when we start to move, okay, so let me let me go back for a quick second. If okay. the if the baby's tongue cannot suck from a breast efficiently, it's often because of a an anterior or posterior tongue tie. Okay. By releasing the tie, we can allow the baby's tongue to, but releasing the tie and then having parents stretch the wounds during the healing process, we can allow the tongue to take its rightful place in the palate and suck efficiently. So it begins with a good latch. Okay. All right. Now, from there, I'm a firm believer that we need to start, as we start to move from breast milk to breast milk and real food, whole food, mm -hmm. hopefully, not just pureed jarred baby food or pouches, right? Right. What those pureed baby foods are, if you think about it, how long ago did we develop blenders in the history of the human race? A quick hot second ago. Right. Or yeah. we didn't have blenders. When you blend the food and give it to the baby, they literally are mimicking that front to back motion of sucking. And now we have pouches of blended. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now they're just sucking from a pouch instead of a breath. Instead of masticating food, where they're literally using, this is called baby lead weaning, where you're mm -hmm. making food soft enough that they can pinch it and squish it and gum it, but they're literally having to navigate food in their mouth and use those masticatory muscles, including the lateral motion of their tongue. So I'm, I'm a big believer that we need to get back to basics, which is introducing whole foods one at a time, just like we do. Um, and including the allergenic foods, but also foods that babies can mow on, that they're basically learning to navigate in their mouth um, and that they're able, when their teeth come in, they're able to really chew real foods and use that tongue laterally to do the expansion. And foods like? You're starting out where there's a lot of books on baby led weaning, but anything sure. else avocados and bananas, and you can, you know, cook the carrots and give them a carrot to mow on mm -hmm. it. Like, you know, every food that we eat, you will be surprised that babies can do this. And I know the pediatricians are a little 
um, are cautious because of choking. But sure. it turns out the research really does support that. I mean, you're not giving kids hot dogs and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, breadsticks with rounded, you know, corners. We're talking about foods that don't, um, that, that babies can break down, but also babies tend to gag when they try to swallow something whole. It's parents that are going like this, that apparently <laughs> cause the baby to gasp and to do, to choke. So, um, okay. I know that that's a fear for people, but sure. You know, watching countless babies of my patients and my nieces and nephews and a variety of people really work on this baby led weaning. It, it's pretty impressive. It's also easier for parents because they're eating the same food you are. Mm-hmm. And it's very much um, better for what we talked about early earlier, which is allergies because we're introducing whole foods and a variety of foods where kids can develop not only a palate where they actually prefer a wider range of foods, which is so much better for everything, obesity, Mm -hmm. diabetes, and, you know, all of that, but also that we're introducing, um, a, a, a larger diversity of food for gut microbiome health. Okay. More fibrous foods, more foods from the vine, the fiber before we grind it up with a blender is really, really good for our gut microbiome in the duodenum, which we call prebiotics. They feed okay. gut bacteria and they mitigate uh, an insulin response. So they they re- release sugar slowly. I'm not suggesting that, you know, if the only way you as an adult get your vegetables is through a smoothie, that you eliminate your smoothie. But if you eat your food, you know, you think about, the huge calorie glut you get from drinking a whole bunch of foods blended up where you can just suck it right down. That Mm -hmm. becomes a bit of an issue for pediatric obesity too, is how much they're able to consume without chewing it. Mm. Mouth is part of that whole digestive process, right? Right. Right. It was designed that way for a reason. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. Sure. You, most people might think we're off subject for airway, but I I don't think we are. Nope. I think we're right on, on, on topic. And you're listening to airway first with today's guest, Dr. Susan Maples. You can find out more about the children's airway first foundation and our mission to fix before six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. The CAF website offers tons of great resources for parents and medical professionals, including videos, blogs, recommended reading lists, comprehensive medical research, podcasts, and so much more. Parents are encouraged to join the Airway Huddle, our Facebook support group, which was created for parents of children with airway and sleep-related issues. You can access the Airway Huddle support group at facebook.com backslash groups, backslash airway huddle. If you're a medical professional or parent interested in being on an upcoming episode, or if you have an idea or topic you'd like us to cover, shoot us a note via our contacts page on our website, or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now let's jump back into my interview with today's guest, Dr. Susan Maples. I want to build on that a little bit because we did touch, we're talking about these kind of habitual complex tasks like chewing and swallowing and you know, this, this proper tongue resting position, which we've talked a lot about. We've had myofunctional therapists come on and try to show us what it looks like and things we can work, you know, we can work with on our, with our kids. But how do we identify this earlier? You know, because I know that, you know, I've heard that they can see some of these things in utero and obviously maybe, that's you know, a Kevin Boyd question. That's a Kevin Boyd question. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, 
after they get here? You know, how do we identify this and how do we, do we address these issues? Well, I think that we have two problems here. One is okay. the lack of fulfillment of the promise, not the promise, of the um, hearty recommendation among all health professionals. I, I, let me just go, let me go back and say it a little bit differently. The American Medical Association, the American Pediatric Association, the American, the American Dental Association, the American Pediatric Dental Association, they all state that we should be seeing a dental health professional under the age of one. It's not that it's happening, but right. most physicians, family practice docs and pediatricians are telling the parents their child needs to see have a dental home under the age of one. I actually think it should be under the age of two weeks, but we'll get there eventually. But under the age, because that way we could really test for these things, right? Mm, okay. Because even the lactation consultants oftentimes don't know really how to evaluate a tongue and a lip tie. And even right. identifying a tongue tie, it's an anterior tie, not a posterior tie. And they're not dealing with the lip at all because the lip function is important for sucking too. Right. And it's, and I find this interesting. And I think we've, we've talked about it at least once, but because it was kind of a revelation to me that it, even as a mom, having gone through childbirth twice, that, that new baby exam that they take your baby and they walk away with them. They don't look in the mouth. That's not part of the. No, it was, no one's looking literally in the late 1700s that we divided the body into systems and gave all the subspecialists a system. The dentist got yeah. the mouth and it's the only area they never address in dental in medical school. No yeah. part of the mouth. They literally look right past the lips to the back of the throat. And don't ask me what they're looking for back there because 80% <laughs> of pediatricians are not picking up pediatric airway problems. And by the way, 76% of adult physicians don't pick it up in adults either. Uh, For telltale signs that we do. So that's us to help teach the physicians how to do it. But in general, it, it, you know, part of the problem is that we can't get general dentists to see babies under the age of one. So if you were told by your pediatrician that you, your child should have a dental home under the age of one. And you said, okay, I'm going to call my dentist. And you call on the phone and the dentist says, I'm sorry, the receptionist says, we don't see them till three years old. So you go, huh, I best, I best get on the internet and find out who's going to see my baby. And mm-hmm. now you end up in a pediatric dental office. And you end up there for 16 years while that dentist missed out on your child all those years. Now the pediatric dentists are full of normal, healthy kids that should be seen by general dentists instead of the kids they're trained to see, which are the behavior problems and the and the um, uh, you know the syndromic kids and the kids that really need them. It's really hard to get in with a pediatric dentist now, and it's my contention is because of all these babies. But in any event, if we can get babies seen under the age of one, and by the way, that was not. That was never supposed to be about airway. That was supposed to be about caries prevention, the number one disease on the planet for children. And really? it's 100% preventable, but we got to see them under the age of one to prevent transmission of strep mutans from mom's saliva to reduce. Wow. But anyway, if we could, going back to that statement, if we mm-hmm. could get kids seen under the age of one and we could incorporate an early airway exam by every dentist, we would be able to identify us boatload of kids. Wow. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're working towards. Steve Carsonson has been really instrumental with the ADA um, Mm -hmm. and helping make dentistry the gatekeepers for pediatric airway. Um, And along with that, trying to develop a very short um, qualified or validated screening tool for pediatric airway. I'm not one to love these very short screening tools. I'd rather have more more parent signs and symptoms talked about so the parents can really identify that they're, how significant the problem is in their child. But that's another question altogether. So the first thing in answer to your question, the first problem we have is the lack of identification. And you asked how we could do it. We can mm-hmm. try to get every dentist in the United States seeing babies under the age of one 
and doing a really good infant oral health exam that includes not only growth and development stuff, but uh, not only looking at, at, at food and at dentistry and at, or at, at, at um, Carrie's disease. Um, I got sidetracked in my mind because I think about the fact that by two years old, 20% of kids have tooth decay in process already. So sad. Uh, anyway, back to that, uh, you know, talking about what to do if there's an emergency, if a child breaks a tooth or revulses a tooth, what to do, um, how to, how, what about fluoride in your water? Like all of these things that need to come up at that infant oral health exam could include a really good airway exam. But let's say we did that overnight. Okay. What, where do these kids get treated? That's another issue altogether. Just to ask people for early identification means now we have, we have a call to action with no action. And that's right. the problem. That's the part that our Endeavor group, a part of AAPMD is really working on building globally, which is some access to help, to care for these kids. So- yeah. And that, I guess that kind of segues into, and I'd love your opinion on this because I, I, I've asked other guests this. You know, so the parents read your book, and and you know they they read Dr. Lim's book, and they they come on our website and they're seeing these symptoms in their children. Yep. And they go to their pediatrician, and they either get they're going to grow out of it, or no, there's nothing wrong, or or they have ADHD, <laughs> or they have ADHD. Here, have a pill. Right. So how do we as parents, and again, they don't know what they don't know. We understand they weren't taught this in medical school. So again, we're not attacking the medical profession. We're just saying as parents, we're becoming more aware. We have this information now. How do we better educate our pediatricians or advocate for our child if we see these things and we're hitting these walls? Well, that's a really good question. I think one of the ways that we can impact the entire movement is to arm parents with not only symptoms, mm -hmm. physical signs, so that they can do an examination on their child to look for the low-hanging fruit, and then be able to ask more of their pediatricians and more of their dentists to say, here's what I know, what do you see? so that the dentist or the pediatrician can say, oh, I didn't know that. Let me do some more learning because it does take, and I don't, I don't want to be dismissive because the people who listen to this podcast are the people who are astute. So I don't want anyone to feel like, oh, she's really down on us, but there right. are so many who aren't and they need our help. Mm -hmm. They don't need our judgment. They need our help. They need us right. to help them see it. But I believe that, you know, mama bears and daddy bears, people that are protecting their kids can also be that help. They can be part of that change they want to see by saying, all right, I've got a list of physical symptoms here and I got a list of physical signs. And from what I can see, this is an issue. Tell me what you see and show those signs and symptoms to them. So the symptoms are things like uh, ADD and ADHD type behaviors, snoring, audible breathing, open mouth breathing, headaches, behavior problems in general, learning deficits, sometimes speech deficits, bedwetting, bruising, and hormonal imbalances. The physical signs, now I differentiate symptoms from signs. Signs are what parents report in terms of behavior or what they've, uh, you know, what they're seeing, maybe the behavioral imbalance was diagnosed by the pediatrician, but uh, bruising, bedwetting, a learning deficits, headaches, these are things that parents notice, right? The physical signs are things that we see as we examine them. And I believe we can teach parents to see this too. Okay. Um, large tonsils, you could just look at a diagram and look at the grading of tonsils and be able to go, cause that's all subjective anyway, right? Mm -hmm. um, nasal congestion, easy thing for parents to figure out. Um, pharyngeal opening, it might be a little bit more difficult. But again, if you look at the melon potty classification, um, that's just a four, four choices, right? And I'm going to go like, which one does my child look like? 
retrognathia, which means the lower jaw seems to be retruded or back, you know, the lip curl and the, the lower jaw set back. Uh, maxillary deficiency, especially um, the transverse width. So are the upper teeth inside the lower teeth or are they outside the lower teeth? You know, we could teach parents that by looking okay. at a diagram. The tethered tongue, um, again, how do, because we have a hard time even teaching lactation consultants um, and OBs and midwives, you know, baby docs to be able to, to do this. But, um, you know, what is it that they look for? What is an anterior tie and posterior tie? Those are things that we could easily teach. Narrow vaulted palate. If the palate doesn't have the shape of the child's flat tongue, uh, why not? And by the way, we haven't talked about pacifiers and thumbs, but when you put a tongue underneath a pacifier or a, or a thumb and push up with it, you're literally shaping the palate to around it. the object, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So back to narrow vaulted palate and tongue thrust, which is when they're breathing, if that open, open um, sorry, when they're swallowing, if that tongue is pushing through an opening in the, in the front of the teeth. And then the dark circles under the eyes, which is literally the pooling of venous blood from the maxilla being too far back and pressing uh, on the sphenoid plexus of, of, of um, vessels. So you get a pooling of unoxygenated blood that is underneath the eyes. We call it venous pooling. So if parents could notice some of these signs along with some of the symptoms and go, oh my gosh, because when you read a book like Shireen Lim's or read a book like mine, Brave Parent, the parents would be like, you are describing my child. And then I describe the physical science and they're like, oh my goodness, I've had... (laughs) People coming to me like, I read your book. My child has an airway problem. I need help. Like, it's not that hard. Yeah. Hard for parents to get it, you know? No, no. And I, and I can also, we, we have in our recommended reading, we have uh, about 14 books, 15 books that, you know, we've put out there that we say, you know, we've read it, you're going to get something from it. But when it comes to parents, anytime I get an email from a parent, what do I read? Yours and, and Dr. Lim's are the, the first two that we come out of the gate with because the the way it's explained and detailed out, it's just, as a parent, you go, oh, oh, I, like, I know I I'm not the only parent that has these tags. Right. So you Thank just, you. So I'm just going to go in and go, okay, see this page and then this page. I mean, I'll tell you what you do. Shereen Lim is a good friend of mine. And I have a book coach who um, I love to write and I love to write for the public, but she, in reading my book, as she was uh, putting together the whole manuscript, she was like, my child has a reading disorder. Great. Oh, you know, and, and so Lauren became, I was going to say Lauren. Yeah. Became an advocate. And then Shereen was having trouble with her book because her book, Shereen is very analytical and very, very much into the research. And, um, she wanted a book that was really relatable to parents. And I said, you need to work with Lauren. She'll help you with this because, mm-hmm. um, and so if that's a real honor that you would say that, um, that my book and Shireen's are more easy, easily digested for the public. I actually think Sharon Moore's book is also it's phenomenal. Right? Absolutely phenomenal. Kids, you know, she's mm-hmm. a therapist and she's really good at speaking to the public as well. So, um, yeah. So thank you for the, for that. Oh, absolutely. So let's just, uh, you know, as, as we're getting kind of towards the end, I, I really want to shift gears because we talked a lot about you know, information for parents. Um, and, and we touched briefly on the fact that, you know, there is this huge gap just on the medical side. And you know, obviously you are a huge advocate for sleep education and airway education. And you know, obviously, because you're on our board, we, we we're well aware of that and very appreciative of, of what you bring to the table. So, honor. Why why are these causes so important to you? I mean, you you travel the world speaking, and you're you know you still have your practice, and you're you know you're leading these discussions, and you're twenty four seven. Where does this drive from? I am. You you know my personal story. Rebecca, I, I don't actually okay. it's written in the preface of the book. So in more okay. detail, but um, 
I was born of two parents who smoked two packs a day each and born with bad lungs, premature lungs, and in an oxygen tent for three months. My lips would turn blue as I got home, remember? I do, yes. Okay, that took and a second. I had allergies and um, I had allergy shots twice a week and I had um, a seven hospitalizations for pneumonia under the age of 12. So it wasn't until I met an internist at the age of in my early teens that I began to, um, she helped me reframe my life and reshift shift to what I was doing. And I started focusing on exercise and um, for lung health and, and diet and sleep. Uh, I was not, I had asthmatic bronchitis. I was pre-diabetic. I mean, this were all because of my situation, but I, I don't need to go on and on about myself only to say that I know what we're capable of as health professionals, because I know that my life is very much impacted by really good health professionals that my mom helped choose. And my mom, um, I was just lucky enough that my mom was getting a PhD in counseling psychology and took her first major job as a psychologist inside the College of Osteopathic Medicine at Michigan State University and navigated those systems to find good doctors for me. But I will say um, I wouldn't be here without health professionals. And I know that we're capable of more than we're doing. And it is a joy for me to turn health professionals on to what we can do for kids um, early, early. I teach a whole bunch of things. You know, I teach oral systemic health for uh, adults, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, acid reflux, food uh, nutrition deficits, uh, food sensitivities, HPV, oral pharyngeal cancer, acid reflux, the list goes on and on. But pediatric health and, and more in particular, I mean, I do everything from obesity and autoimmune problems to airway, but pediatric airway, super special to me. And it's, it's an area that so many uh, dentists have gotten involved in uh, sleep treatment or diagnosis for adults, but they have no idea that they could prevent all that. And teaching yeah. people that if we look at children a little differently, and I also say we can fix under six, let's get these kids before they end up at an orthodontist office, right? Mm -hmm. we, we can change the shape of the inside of their mouth, teach them through myofunctional therapy, how to use their tongue, release tethered tissues if they have them. Like we can do this without having the need for um, braces. And by the way, braces really, really, uh, for often kids are retracted during braces. So they move things backwards mm -hmm. and smaller, not right forward. into the airway. Yeah. 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 So it's a passion for me. And I think the other passion for me is connecting the dots in my community, really um, establishing networks of, of physicians that support this in all aspects of subspecialty. I did a, a great big seminar for all aspects of physicians in our in our community called Breathe Well Little One. And we brought a pediatric ENT, a pediatric sleep doctor, and myself to speak to uh, a group of, of health professionals represented by 17 different varieties. There were about 150 people there. It was a big deal. And those are the kind of things that our communities need. They need us to be together, collaborating, uh, mm -hmm. building friendships, uh, having each other on a text thread, being able to create co-referral relationships. You had asked one of these questions, you had asked like, a lot of people have a hard time, you know, getting their referrals taken seriously among the medical profession. Yeah. We need to continue to write letters of advocacy to their docs, even when they aren't referred by their docs, especially when they're not referred by the docs. Let's say they come to you from their, um, from their midwife or their doula or their lactation consultant or whatever. We need to write letters to the pediatricians to say, we saw your patient. Here are the parent reported symptoms. Here are the physical signs. Here's what we did or are planning to do. And we just wanted to keep you in the loop. That's how we educate them. We don't need okay. to like knock on the door all the time, but you can't just do it when you want something from them. You mm -hmm. need to know you're playing for keeps here. 
And right. we have a health relationship coordinator in our practice who's who's part of a big part of her role is to be the liaison between our patients and the medical uh, the medical world. So it's a Which big is phenomenal. Yeah. And you know, and some of the groups that you mentioned are also, you know, groups that we support and we work with. And I want to make sure for any of the medical professionals listening, you know, check some of these groups out, like the like the Endeavor group, like uh, Sleep Education Consortium. Um, airway revolution, uh, airway health solutions. And they just had airway Palooza in December. I mean, these are, that was Palooza. Wow. They were, and they're just phenomenal groups. So, and we'll make sure we put links to all of those in our show notes as well. Collaboration cures, which is in, uh, Oh, that's right. The AP and D. Yes. Yep. And we'll, we'll put a link to that as well. That's right. Collaboration cures. Yep. Where AASH and APMD come together. Which is Um, massive. Yeah, it's awesome. And I will say it's this, none of this is a thankless job. I was very proud of my community. I practice in a small town adjacent to the capital city and the capital city, Michigan is called Lansing. And in our area, we had these entrepreneur of the year awards for businesses, um, young businesses mostly, but they're really celebrated with all of the business owners in the, in the area. My practice is 37 and a half years old and we we won the Entrepreneur of the Year Award in Influence and Impact this year. So I will tell you, it's not unnoticed what we're doing. Continue to reach out, continue to build bridges, continue to help people understand without diminishing or complaining about anybody. Don't right. judge, just, you know, you just need to breathe in some confidence and breathe out some fear and allow yourself to call people and write letters to them and learn to speak their language and help them speak yours, help them learn the mouth. They're very appreciative. Literally physicians have no idea what they're doing with the mouth and using the mouth telltale signs of sleep related breathing disorders in children is huge. Just It is. It's absolutely huge. Well, at the end of every podcast, and I know we've covered, we covered a lot. Um, So I always like, to turn the floor back over to the guests. Cause again, you know, y'all are the experts. Final words for either parents or medical professionals that you would like to just leave with our listeners. I just like Margaret Mead's words, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world because indeed it is the only thing that ever has. So your children's yeah. foundation is really uh, first foundation is really um, that group. And, and there are many others, but I believe that we can do this. Um, I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, but I do know that you're listening for a reason and that you are chosen because of your interest to help spread the word. So if you like something on this today, repeat it to someone um, and just continue to be the change you want to see in the world. In a world that's lacking prevention, we circle around to how we started in the world that doesn't pay for prevention, we're doing it out of the goodness of our heart to make a better tomorrow. And it's important that we continue to talk about it. Absolutely. I, thank you. Thank you for, for that. It was probably one of the most profound and just thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you for that. For all the work you're doing, Rebecca. And we're neighbors. I know we are. Yay, Michigan. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Have a great evening. Thank you again for having me on. Thank you. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Susan Maples, for sharing her medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review or comment telling us about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Parents can also join us via our Facebook parent support group, The Airway Huddle, at facebook.com backslash groups backslash airway huddles. Looking for more from CAF? Then check out our YouTube channel. You can find a variety of informative original video content pieces, as well as other video recordings and excerpts from selected Airway First podcast episodes. If you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. 
And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone. 